This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Quitters. I'm Chad Sanders. I'm Julie Bowen. And today, I was kind of giddy. I was really excited today. Why were you excited? We had Lamorne Morris on today, and I read his dossier, and I learned about him, and I was judging him, and it's not fair. And I know people also judge me that way. It's one of the things I'm most scared of, to see how lived in he is in his own skin, and his own humor, his own point of view. It made the world I live in feel bigger. When you talk to somebody like him, because he is so funny and warm and real and no bullshit, how does it change the rest of your day? You know, I work really angry and I'm working on how can I also be sweet and fun and joyful the way that I kind of been wired to be outside of work. That's how I felt about his spirit. Yeah. He was just good, man. Yeah. And he's got a great quit, too. He does have a great quit. He's got his own voice. Yeah. And no matter what we said or did, it wasn't going to blow him off course from who he is. He's very sure of himself. He's very talented. He's very funny. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed interviewing him. I learned a lot. Me, too. It was cool to see you two have an intersection. You shared a lot. You're both funny. You're both quick. You're both smart. It's fun to see when your kind of alien is on the show. It's fun to see you all do your alien crosstalk. Why were we both aliens? Because we're both actors who like to do bits. Yeah. (laughs) You know how to fit funny into tight spaces. Oh, thank you. It's really smart. It's like really sharp. I'm trying to pick it up from you guys. I am very flattered. Well, I love Lamorne, so stay tuned. And here he is, Lamorne Morris. There he is. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for coming here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. And I'm going to say some words real quick to get us going because we're going to do a black show today. Oh, shit. What should I do then? (laughs) You should participate. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I participate in a lot of white shows. You can participate in a black show. Okay. Lamorne, no gas. I'm really excited to have you. We're excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. This is me serving myself up. Are you ready? Yes. Yeah. I was like, can we also book some black people that white people don't know, that don't make white people comfortable? Because I was judging Lamorne. And then we got <laughs> your dossier and I read your story. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn, I had this guy completely wrong. <laughs> well, you're the FBI? How are you get a dossier on me? Yeah, we have the Steele dossier. We have. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like that happens a lot in your life sometimes. Yeah. Why does that happen? I think maybe the way I speak. I have no idea. Sometimes with black folks, if you speak with a certain vernacular, they go, oh, he talk white. That's literally what I've been getting my whole life. I'm from the south side of Chicago. May I ask you, Chad, what was it that you thought was making white people comfortable? I'm only quoting you. It's so nuanced. And also, I've been accused of the same thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it is partially a cadence and tone of speech. What I asked Rachel, our producer, was in considering which black people make white people comfortable, think about how do you know who this person is? Where did you find him? Which is basically, I think, probably new girl for Rachel and many people. And why do you like him? I think is the thing to be considered sometimes. 
I write about black stuff. Mm-hmm. Why does Brene Brown like me? Why did Julie Bowen feel let in by me? Yeah. It's very tricky. Do you have a theory on this, Lamorne? I do. It's a lot of what you said. Mm-hmm. When I first started, you know, I left the South Side of Chicago and I started performing like Second City Chicago. Second City Chicago, wasn't that many black folks in Second City Chicago. So, you know, to black folks, they were like, oh man, that dude's funny. It's just a little weird. You know, his sense of humor is weird. What was weird? Not being Martin. You know, okay. not being Cedric the Entertainer. Was that improv style considered white? Yeah. Oh, oh 100%. Okay. And even so, at Second City, we would have these different groups, these subgroups that they would call them, different touring companies, Red Co., Green Co., then we had Brown Co. Brown Co. <laughs> was an initiative to get black and brown folks in the audiences. Danny Pudi was a part of that. Sam Richardson was a part of that. Uh-huh. I think Keegan Michael Key created that mm. and was one of the teachers there. We had to bring that audience in there and give our style of humor. But then we had to go even further. We had groups called Pimp Prof <laughs> just to show we could do improv, but it's still the Martin style comedy, you know, the South Side of Chicago type of stuff. And we could still do it, but we have this big scope of what we can do. And I think one of the bigger issues is that sometimes we think that Black has to be one thing. You know what I mean? Mm. And it is not. I'm on this show called Woke, and it shows that there are such things as black nerds, Mm. black comic strip illustrators. We have different senses of humor. We walk a different path politically. Doesn't mean we're any less black. It's just, I guess, the safetiness of it for white folks sometimes. They can feel safer, I guess. I want to ask a quick question about your improv experience. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it makes people more comfortable to see a black man doing, quote-unquote, white-style improv, to use your terminology, or does it make white people more comfortable to see a black man doing improv in this a la, as you said, Martin? Which one do you think is making white people more comfortable? I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) I don't know either. (laughs) (laughs) Because one could be seen as a stereotype. We should be careful not to distance ourselves from Martin-style comedy, whatever that means. No, it's my favorite style. It's just that when you're at Second City, you don't have those teachers there that are looking at your voice and saying, how do we do this form of improv, this long form of improv, whatever game we're playing? but with your voice. Right. And then you're surrounded by white students. Mm -hmm. It's like being the only black person on the show sometimes. You improvise a joke and you look around and no one understands the reference. Oh. So you have to like uh, fit in a little bit so people can understand what you're saying. And that fitting in, that's the thing I was judging before I read your story. And there's so much in your story that we want to get into. Why do they laugh at his jokes, I wonder? Mm -hmm. It just seems like if they like it, then it must not be healthy for us. But that's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait. That is so not fair. (laughs) It's not fair to Lamorne. I think it's perfectly fair as a judgment of audience. I don't think it's fair to anyone. Well, I do. You do. If you're on a stage, Lamorne, and you're doing improv and the laughs are coming and the lights are down, do you care who's laughing or you just are responding to the laughs? Well, you want to care who's laughing. You don't want to alienate any members of your audience, you know, but you are the performer, right? Right. If what you're performing is true to you, yeah. sometimes you can't help who gets Who it, laughs. Who right. laughs. I can't help that I speak with a certain cadence. I can't help that I speak a certain way. And you never know. Sometimes when you're in a rhythm on stage, it changes. Mm. Right. Delivery is a lot of that as well. Think about old school Chappelle. Yeah. You talk to a lot of comedians. Chappelle is the greatest stand-up comedian of all time, in my opinion. Mm. When he first started, it wasn't like that with a lot of black folks. It was other comedians. And I thought Chappelle was the GOAT from a while ago. But he had a big white audience. 
because of the way he spoke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to think about that. It's a real thing. Yeah. Because I have loved him from the Chappelle show. Mm-hmm. I'm even going before Chappelle show. You know, he had a black audience, obviously. He's Dave Chappelle. He had this specific cadence. You know what I'm saying, man? And, right. You know, black folks were like, Let's do, who is this dude? You know? Lamorne, do you think if you spoke differently, do you think if you presented differently, do you think that mainstream white audiences would be aware of you? I don't know. There are multiple layers to that as well. It's not just how you speak. It's what platform you're speaking on. Mm -hmm. When I first started out on television, I was on BET. We're going to talk about it. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I want to hear about that quick. Yeah. Speaking the exact same way that I speak now. Yeah. Yeah. I was put in this weird box when I was there to tell certain jokes and to try to do certain things. And I was out of my comfort zone a little bit. And there was one mainstream white person who knew who I was, and it was Ellen, (laughs) which was very weird. Ellen used to watch 106 in Park on the treadmill when she was warming up for her show or whatever. And my show would come on right afterward. I was so left of center. My jokes were so weird. And I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> like, I don't know what I was talking about. But that style gravitated towards her direction. Mm-hmm. But the opposite was also happening. I remember being in New York one time and I was leaving this party and this girl comes up to me and she goes, yo, you are mad funny on that show, but like... Niggas in the hood ain't feeling that corny shit. <laughs> That's what she said to me. I was like, well, goddamn. Yeah. Thank you for your honesty. Also, leave me the fuck alone. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, what was that compliment wrapped in a punch? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> man, I can't help but what I'm doing. I guess I could expand. I don't know. But then I left BET, went cold turkey, broke, did the whole commercial thing. And then once I started doing commercials, then you started to see the audience expand more. Mm. It started to shift. The commercials that I would book were very my style of humor, but I guess safe humor. Right. And Lamorne, I think you just dropped the first and mom that we've had on the show. We're a very young mm-hmm. show, but mm-hmm. hopefully there will be more. That is our first, without a doubt. We're doing Quitters, The Breakfast Club today. Yeah. You're everywhere. You're in the 99.9 percentile. The Black Chris Hemsworth, that's what they've been calling me. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is yeah. <laughs> the Black Thor? Yeah. Yeah, I got that hammer. Hey. Mm. <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> I want to hear more about quitting BET, though, because Mm, mm. we got to talk about it. Wait, he shrugged it like, "Mm," like it was painful or you're done with it. It was an interesting time for me. I loved working at BET. Did you really? Yeah, because I got to experience, in hindsight, you can look back and say that, because I learned so much from the people there. Mm. The people that I worked with are still friends. Right. We've all grown up, even from my superiors there. We've all grown and we've all taken on new roles and new chapters in our lives that we can look back on it and talk about it. But when I was there in that moment, it was a wild place. It was a crazy place for me. I remember, so Reginald Hudlin. I know Reg. Yeah. We love Reg. Reggie hired me. (laughs) He did? Yeah, because Reggie and I speak a very similar language, Second City style comedy. I remember going in for the audition and I read the audition material, which is very VJ stuff. I knew what I wanted to do, but in Chicago, the opportunities were limited. So it was like an audition to be on TV was here. So let's do it. Mm. I go in and it was like a countdown thing. Coming in on top 10 is Mary J. Blige. And then it's this person. I was like, it don't even feel right coming out of my body to say these words. And so I just said it in a way that I thought I should say it, which was kind of like mocking the VJ. Uh-huh. And I started, you know, telling dumb jokes about each artist. Like right there on the spot. And then you just hear, ha, 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 behind the camera. <laughs> and I didn't know. It was such an obnoxious laugh. I didn't know if it was genuine <laughs> or sarcastic. And then he goes, go home. And I thought, well, shit. 
<laughs> that was the quickest bomb I've ever had in my life. And then I booked it. And when they brought me in, you could tell there was an internal struggle of where they were going to put me. They were testing the VJs out. Does he host 106 in Park? In my mind, I knew, hell no, I'm not hosting that show. Hip-hop is my favorite genre of music, but I get so nervous around famous people that I don't want to interview them. Like, I was like, man, this is going to be weird for me, especially rappers. <laughs> I can't do it. So I think my first interview was David Allen Greer. I was so nervous and I didn't know how to speak in general on TV. I was so used to acting and doing character work. I didn't know what this was. Right. And my brother said to me, he goes, why are you talking like Dave Chappelle? <laughs> Were you really over-enunciating? I didn't know how to speak. So at the time, I was just so used to watching Chappelle every day that I was interviewing people like this. You know what I'm saying? And, mm, I was doing that. <laughs> I swear to you. That's what I was doing. Oh, that's fantastic. They didn't fire you. But you quit. I did quit. BET has a stigma within our own sort of Black Hollywood community. Yeah. And I'm not protecting BET on this show because BET is owned by white folks. Mm -hmm. I feel like people are like, you got to protect BET. It's Black. But it's not. Yeah. It's not? No, it's owned by Viacom. Oh. It's a brand for Black people owned by Viacom. But why the stigma? Why did you cringe when we started getting into the story a little bit? Well, because I didn't know what you guys have heard. <laughs> you know, I'm going, which version of the story do they have? The thing we always like to focus on is what happened right before you quit that turned that knob for you and how did it play out? There were a lot of creative differences, a lot. It was a snowball effect, right? I'm an actor. So when I was in New York, it was a great opportunity to act as well. I would audition for jobs and I would book some of them, but I couldn't do them because of the BET schedule. Now, the problem was the BET schedule, things weren't always running on time. Right. You know, so I'd have to be at a certain place and then you get there and it's like, you don't have to do this shoot. And I go, so you mean to tell me I had this whole week off, really? But I flew in town and things like that would happen. Then one time I booked this movie that I really wanted to do. It was this movie with Jackie Long, who I love him as an actor. He's one of my favorite people. And I really wanted to do it. It's only like two or three days for me to shoot. They said, well, you have to be in Miami for a spring blink, the annual spring break show. Damn it. Okay. When I get there, they wanted to switch up what it was that I was doing. They wanted me to do this thing where I would make fun of kids on the beach. Oh. And I, so I would get there and I felt so bad because I was destroying fools. <laughs> they wanted me to mock people based off of what they were wearing. It was the fashion police. Oh, no. And I did it, but it hurt me to do it because people were showing up wearing what they thought was the best stuff they had. Mm -hmm. And I was making fun of them. Were people signing up for this? They walked up to you and said, what do you think? Or did you just walk down the beach going, no, no, no? I would walk down the beach with a bullhorn. Oh, no. And a camera crew. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I'm evil, too, because I did it. And I made up all the jokes on the spot. I made one girl cry, and that was it for me. Man, this is embarrassing. This is not my style of comedy. I do it with friends. I'll make fun of friends. Sure. You know what I mean? But I don't know what's going on in this person's life. And I know it's just comedy. But when I found out that not everybody signed up for that, it's not like going to a comedy show when you know when you walk in the building, you might get roasted. Mm. They're on the beach just trying to hang out with their friends and enjoy the festivities and possibly get on TV. Not in the way that I put them on TV. And I started feeling bad about myself and about the people. And I started to slowly phase my way out. So I got a call from Ellen saying she wanted me to come be on her show, to be a co-host on her show. What year is this? It's probably been 2005, 2006. Oh, okay, okay. So way pre-Twitch. Pre-Twitch. This was, I want to say it was to be Twitch. I think they were looking for that person. 
And they wanted to fly me out to talk to me about it. BET wouldn't allow it. I tried to work it out where I could do both because I knew my BET schedule. I was working two weekends a month. And I thought, with this schedule, I could easily do it. It wasn't happening. I would get chastised a lot about my delivery, about the type of humor that I had. As much as I love the place, again, all the hosts are still my friends. The producers were still very friendly. We vibe. There was just a note coming from the top. And I don't know how far up the chain. I know we talked about this, Chad, because I'm about Viacom. Yeah. I don't know how far up the chain that was coming. It was Sumner Redstone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Where is his gold chain? Exactly. <laughs> and Lamorne, I think at BET, there's so many people who are talented working in all the talent roles, some of the producer roles, and people can't see them over there. Yeah. When it was time for me to leave, I made a deal. I said, you can cut my pay. And they did. They cut my pay in half. And I want to leave. I want to go live in L.A. And if you need me as a correspondent while I'm there, I'll be the L.A. person. Because I was flying to L.A. constantly to shoot. You know, you save money on plane tickets. Look at that. Right. Actually, before they cut my pay, that's what it was. They said, you can move there and shoot your show in L.A. So I said, okay, cool. Then they said, oh, we're going to cut your pay. Oh. Mm. And I was like, wait, what? You told me I could move. Then it was this whole thing was, no, he didn't. They literally went back on their word and said, we never said that. Can I ask you, did you have an agent or a lawyer involved in any of this? At the time, I didn't have a lawyer involved. I had an agent involved, but it was a local Chicago agent that, no disrespect, wasn't on top of it. So if we zoom out a little bit on just the story in terms of you deciding to leave this place, it feels like to some extent there was a greater opportunity mm-hmm. out there that you saw that you could visualize. Yeah. But also it sounds like even though you were not Lamar Morris as you are today, you were like, I have to value my career. I have to value my ability, even if they are not showing that value. Is that fair to say or am I making it too grandiose? No, that's exactly what it is. Even though it was Ellen, it would have been hosting still for me, which is something that I enjoy doing, but I never took my shot at acting fully. Right. Mm. So I just wanted to be in L.A. So I thought, oh, being on Ellen would be paying me while I'm still in L.A. auditioning and studying. But somehow you ended up living in your car. Yeah. This did not pan out as planned. What happened after you quit BET? Oh, boy. That was uh, 08, I want to say. And I went cold turkey. I quit hosting completely. This is the way to do it. You got to rip it off like a Band-Aid. Yeah, and burn that bridge. Yeah. Again, I still had the relationships with some of the producers. So what would happen when I was getting broke, they would call me for certain gigs for different projects. They'd go, hey, man, I'm over here at MTV now. I need to do this thing. Can you come? Yes, I could be there. I don't have any money. You know? <laughs> so, but you burned the bridge with BET. I wouldn't say I burned the bridge. Have I worked with them since? No. <laughs> have they ever nominated me for any BET awards? No. I bet they've called you. I bet they've called you, though. Actually, I don't know if they have. Wow. Well, they probably think they got no shot at this point. No, that's not true. I would. Listen, if the project is right, if the people that I work with are dope, If I'm learning from the people that I work with, I'm all about it. I shoot student films if I believe in that kid. Right. Mm. If you think it's the right person, exactly. But wait, Lamorne, this is the juiciest part. The morning you woke up to quit, did you know it was that day? Or had you been going, one of these days, one of these days, and then suddenly it's Tuesday. When you wake up that day, what is the feeling before you pick up the phone and who do you call? It was a Wednesday. Yeah. Steve Chappelle's with us. Mm. I knew it was time because I didn't have an erection that morning. Mm. Oh, my God. I said, where's my wood? (laughs) No. uh, (laughs) I don't remember the specific thing. I don't know if it was an email. I think it was just a, 
I'm not re-signing with you. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. I think that's what it was. And it was really hard for me to do because, again, I love the people there. Yeah. It was just the machine of it. Right. And the pay. Yeah, and the pay. The pay structure. The pay structure. I mean, I don't want to put their business out there, but it was, you know. No, but they were cutting you off from other opportunities. It's ridiculous. But do you know who you contacted to quit? It might have been Stephen Hill. It may have been Reggie Hudlin. It was one of the two. I'm going to call Reg, ask him right now. Yeah, call Reg. It might have been Reggie. Because then Reggie afterwards would call me for other jobs. Of course he would, because you're wildly talented. Man, Reggie and his partner, Byron Phillips, those guys, man, they really held me down. And that's what I appreciate the most. It's the people. The people there never disappointed me. Even when it was, again, a higher up giving me some sort of tongue lashing because they didn't like what I did. I knew that this is all part of growth. This is all part of the process. And I never took it too, too seriously. And one, y'all ain't paying me right. So I'm not going right. to I'm not going to take this disrespect. But you were young, though. You were in your early, mid-20s. I was 21, I want to say. Oh, damn. Yeah. So you said, I knew this was part of the process. I knew I had to rip the Band-Aid. These are very prescient. That's the right word, Julie? Or am I fucking that up? Oh, I mean, yes, please. Bring it. These are prescient <laughs> things to know as a... <laughs> you offended me with this word. <laughs> Can't have your shirt open and say that word at the same time. So did you actually know that stuff at that age? Or are you in hindsight looking back and being, this is the human spirit. I had intuition. But did you really feel that in the moment? I think I did. And here's why. I never lived in the moment. In the beginning, I was very calculated with how I operated. Mm -hmm. And that was because I knew I had a goal and I knew I wasn't there. So I knew everything was a process. Everything was a part of the plan. It started in high school. I got cut from the basketball team. I thought I was Michael Jordan. Turns out I was not. (laughs) And I didn't know what to do with my time. I was so used to just trying to play basketball all the time and before school, during school, after school. That was my thing. And so I had to do theater. And I remember being in the theater program, not knowing what I wanted to do after that. I just thought it was just a way to kill time. Then I was in men's choir. Then I was in concert choir. Then I found myself performing all the time and really enjoying it. And I got kicked out of class a lot for goofing off and telling jokes. And one of the people in detention said, hey, have you thought about a place called Second City? Gave me a pamphlet and said, this is what you probably should do after high school. So I did that and I studied theater in college. But I didn't know what to do after that. So I would ask, say, hey, what do I do after this? And Deanna Griffin, the head of our program at Second City, I love dearly. She changed my life. She said, get an agent. I said, how do I get an agent? She goes, go get headshots. She goes, once you get headshots, then come back and then ask me what to do next. Oh, man, she's an angel. Yeah. You need people like that. Yeah. That's incredible to have that clarity. So it's step by step. Step by step. And so every time I went, I said, what do I do? She said, get an agent. Okay, got an agent. What do I do? She says, stay on the ass. They got an audition. They got an audition. They got You know, and every step of the way, she would guide me. Okay, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. So when you quit from BET, did you call her? Yeah, her. I called one of my other directors, David Pompey who's great. David Pompey to the rescue. I mean, he came into my apartment when I first moved to LA and we started writing. And it opened up my eyes to, one, how bad of a writer I was. And I'm going to credit David Pompey with the heightening of my mind or the expansion of my mind, but then how I got to my car. And so I'll explain. Oh, oh, I can't wait. Love David. (laughs) David Pompey opened my eyes to something that he should not have. And that was marijuana. (laughs) David said to me, he goes, hey, man, you know why your writing's not funny? I said, why, David? He goes, because you don't smoke weed. What are you talking about? He said, you got to try it, man. Just try it. Had this neighbor, a guy named Blaze. (laughs) This long hair, white dude, looked like Jesus. 
And Blaze grew weed. So he brought some to my place once and he dropped off. I'm talking a massive bag. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey man, some of it's good and some of it's not good. So I don't know. Here's a pipe. All you gotta do is put it in here. Just just pull on it, you know, and then you're good. And I was like, all right. You literally never smoked pot. Never. At this point, maybe I was 24, I want to say. And I didn't have my first drink until I was 22. And so started everything late. Man, I grew up in a terrible environment. <laughs> I, grew, <laughs> I was like, I'm not going out like certain people in my family. And, you know, okay. I'm not doing that. So, yeah, started out late in life in a lot of things. So you waited until you felt safe enough. that You knew you were not going to slide down the slippery slope of other people. Yeah. I mean, I got a strict mom. But there you are. Finally, in LA, you're paying your rent. Yeah. You have a car. Yes. And now you are introduced to weed. Yes. And you think, I can do this now because I am responsible for me. Yes, exactly. But the problem was I didn't handle it the right way. I started spending all my money on weed and wasn't writing. And I wasn't auditioning. And I wasn't networking. I wasn't doing anything I was supposed to be doing when I was in LA. I was just enjoying the weather, the women, and the weed. The three W's are gonna kill me (laughs) out here. And that's what it was. And so I just remember, you know, one month asking my mom, hey, you mind if I borrow this amount of money? You mind if I borrow that amount of money? And I became that person trying to work as much as I can, getting gigs here and there. Then the apartment complex, they really liked me. So they would kick me out, but they would leave my stuff in there. So when I slept in my car, I wasn't like on the streets. Some nights I wouldn't be able to get into my apartment. So some nights I would have to literally stay in my car. And that turned into multiple nights. And then it was like, okay, you're going to need to pay something on this rent. Otherwise, we're going to really have to kick you out. That's when actually, God rest his soul, Chad Bozeman. Chad Bozeman was a dear friend of mine. And he, at the time, referred me to a buddy of his who needed a place to stay. And Chad to the rescue. His buddy moved in, paid half the rent, and we were good to go. That was that stint. But it was because of the weed... (laughs) So your quitting BET led to you having more time, basically, to waste your life? Yeah. (laughs) With David Pompey? Yeah, me and David Pompey, just running these streets. (laughs) And then when did New Girl come into your life? New Girl happened in 2011. So after that, living in my car, my car gets repoed. Yeah. Long story short, I had to go to an audition, and I would borrow friends' cars for auditions. Shout out to all those people that let me borrow their car. Yeah. I really appreciate you. But I was running late for an audition. And I remember it was a Miller Lite commercial. And I was like, holy shit, I'm going to miss this. And I was like, I think it's a funny one because, you know, they're calling me to do it. And I was like, it's got to be funny. Mm -hmm. And so I get in there and I'm super late. And the casting director goes, hurry up, hurry up. Have you read the sides? And I lied and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read the sides. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I go inside. Now, luckily for me, the sides were printed out right behind the camera. But you have to know the sides. Right. So I'm like this, like back and forth looking up. Like <laughs> Now, prior to that point, I wasn't using the skill that I fell in love with, which was improv. In my auditions, so I wasn't booking anything. I was trying to fit the character that I thought the director and the producers and casting wanted, not knowing that, oh, everyone is unique. Everyone has to trust their humanity. And so I did it. I went in and just made shit up. Oh, really? <laughs> I want to ask about that specifically, mm-hmm. that trying to fit into the character that you think it is. When I see that character and I've watched it and you're fantastic, obviously. Thank you. You see the character and the first thing I project on that character is, oh my God, this poor guy, he's a black guy. None of his friends are black. None of his people are black. And you know, that's not the show. Yeah. I know that's not the point, but that's what I see when I watch it. Mm -hmm. Does that stuff come up for you when you're being a character like that? Yeah, it does. You're doing like a character breakdown or analysis or whatever you would call it. That's part of what it is. I mean, we don't live in a raceless society. Hmm. You see color. Doesn't mean it's in a nefarious way. 
So when you're breaking something down, I go, okay, how do I feel about having white roommates and none of them come from where I come from? Right. And then you start to find similarities and you talk to the other actors about it. So Jake Johnson and I did that. Jake Johnson and I said, oh, we're both from Chicago. Oh, really? Because we are both from Chicago. And then it's like, we grew up together. Okay, cool. And we make fun of each other based off race as well. So we can have those race conversations. I make fun of him being Jewish. He makes fun of me being black. We make fun of these things. I make fun of his father. He makes fun of my father. Right. How is this dynamic going to work? Because what if we did grow up in the same neighborhood as a black and white kid? And that's how I address that particular part with that character. Mm. But now you're on Woke. Mm -hmm. Does it feel different comparing, as Chad was saying, he sees you as a black man on a primarily white TV show and going, oh, that poor guy. Mm -hmm. Does it feel creatively different? It does feel creatively different. But I will say this, probably not because of that. It's creatively different because the medium is different. They're both goofballs. But New Girl didn't have a point. We're just living. Right. You know what I mean? Like, we're just, right. we're just living and we kind of go wherever the wind takes us. A lot of relationship stuff, for sure. But Woke, there is a point. Mm-hmm. There are all these, quote unquote, teachable moments in the show and these things that folks are faced with that we're trying to talk about. And also, this show stems from a person's real perspective. Mm-hmm. I play a guy named Keith. He's a real person. But damn, isn't that the whole fucking thing? New girl is just, you just exist. It's just life. Yeah. It's just whatever. And fucking woke has to have a message. It has to talk. It has to be grounded and real and say something. Exactly. J.B. Smoove plays your pen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's got a message, but it is also really funny and weird because you do interact with these inanimate <laughs> objects, which yeah. has got to be a real party when you're shooting. Yeah. Oh, my God. Did the point resonate, Lamorne? I'm finding often when I say something like that, someone will jump in in defense of the counter to that point of view. Someone would be me. I mean, sometimes it's you, sometimes it's my other white colleagues, but it's usually a okay. white person. Lamorne, did the point resonate or do you feel like I was reaching there? You mean where we don't have the space to just be? To just do new girl. Let me tell you something. You remember, uh, don't be a menace to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood? Absolutely. Yes. What's the key number you went to? It always pop up and go, message! <laughs> yeah. Because exactly. in our movies, <laughs> we always have to have a message. Mm-hmm. It has to have this thing and sometimes... I'm like, my brain isn't equipped to always give a message. Sometimes I just want to be silly. Yeah. And that's what our show is trying to say. It's the message of we shouldn't have to have a message. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, have you seen the show Grand Crew? No. No. I keep hearing about it, though. Man, I'm, I love that show. I've seen about five or six episodes of it. That's what it is. It's New Girl. Word. It's these people. They just hang out and kick it. And they get into relationships. They're bad at them. They're sommeliers. And they don't have a message. There's no message. There's no message. It's, <laughs> it's so just funny. Life. It's just life. It's just a group of friends who all happen to be black friends. And they mm-hmm. hang it out. They kicking it. Like <laughs> we do. <laughs> you know, when I'm hanging out with my friends, we're not dropping jewels on each other every 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. It's not all about politics. It's not all about the state of affairs in our country and the plight of the black man. It's not. <laughs> we just <laughs> kicking it. I wanted to ask you about Woke then and sort of about whether or not a show has to have a message. I could get a bell rung on me right now, but that's what we're here for. <laughs> get ready. Chad is so ready for it. Am I the only idiot who thought it was white people who needed to be woke. I was shocked when they were like, you're woke. Your character, Keith, is woke. I thought that was inherent in the Black experience. Being woke? Yeah. Here's the thing. You can be ignorant to a lot of things. 
black, white, it doesn't matter what you are. You could be ignorant to what's going on in your own community, your own neighborhood. Right. The question sometimes people ask, and I'll tell folks all the time, hey, man, why don't we have healthy grocery stores in the hood? Yeah. They're few and far between. You got to drive way over here to go get organic this. It's like, why is that? You know, it's funding that comes from, who knows, maybe it's intentional. Why are the kids underperforming in certain schools? Well, I can attest to that. I went from black school in South Side of Chicago to a white school literally overnight. And I saw the difference from driving 45 minutes away is funding, being alert and aware of those things. So when people are so quick to say, you know, why are they underperforming? Look at this and look at that. And you go, man, y'all ain't giving us shit. Mm-hmm. You know, over here, the funding is supposed to be spread out, spread even. So our kids aren't getting a fair shot. There's no chance. Yeah, there's no chance. We're not eating right. So they're tired when they wake up in the morning eating bullshit food, not training their bodies and their minds Mm -hmm. to be efficient when they are learning. Mm -hmm. So automatically you're starting further back. I'm not using that as an excuse because a lot of folks make it out of that environment. When you're talking about children, it takes an adult to get that child out of that environment. But a lot of times that adult is working 80 hours a week at one of the rare jobs in the neighborhood to try to provide. So being aware of all those things, a lot of times we live in it and we don't even know that that's happening to us. If I can pitch quickly on it also, Julie, not being aware of it doesn't make your life any better. You're still at risk. You're still in danger. Yeah. And to not acknowledge it is putting yourself in more danger, I would say. But on the show, just to drill down on it a little, you've got this very funny roommate Mm -hmm. who pretends to be, you know, all sorts of famous. He's just trying to get some. And he's the one that says to Keith, your character, Oh, no, you're woke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then your agent, the woman says, no, 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 no. You got to make your money and then you get woke. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is so specific of me. But are those people woke? The ones who are commenting on wokeness? Slow your roll, buddy. You don't want to be too woke too fast. Yeah. Are they actually woke? Yeah. Just because you see the water don't mean you got to drink it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So woke is an action, yeah. not just an awareness. Right. You know, you could be woke and still not do anything. It doesn't mean you have to take initiative. It doesn't mean you have to be like, now I'm going to go stand up for the people. Like, no, you could just be like, well, it is what it is. Ah, okay. That's really, what do you think of that, Chad? Well, I mean, there's like so many dimensions of it. Mm-hmm. I'm super attuned to a very specific type of struggle Mm -hmm. and way less attuned to many other types of struggle. I need to learn about those. I need to observe. I need to ask questions, but I also need to get out of the way and not ask too many questions such that I exhaust somebody. Yeah. But it definitely is a living sport. Lamorne, I was going to ask, in doing this show, you must expect that you are then going to be asked these questions in interviews, especially given that you are who you are. And I'm sure there's white people around in your life. Now, I imagine the questions you were being asked have probably increased by tenfold. You're the expert now, right? Yeah. How is that doing for your emotional and mental health? Sucks. Because it's unfortunate that this even has to be a dialogue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That just shows you where we are today and that you're asking me, a guy who's accused of being safe to white people, about the struggle of Black folks. Man, this isn't where I saw my life because I'm not politically uh, tuned. I'm not that person. I was never interested in politics. I knew what was going on in my life. I knew what was happening with me and my friends. And we just handle it how we handle it. And then you start to see the world in chaos and your country in chaos. And then it's the topic everywhere you go. Right. And you can't escape it. You're speaking to my soul. Something that comes up in response to everything you're expressing often from white people, I would say white women especially, 
is, but I want to learn. I, I got to get better. And it gets on you. Yeah. It gets so on you that it feels like you're wrestling every day. Yeah. Are you finding ways to carve your space? Yeah. I tell people this all the time. Do whatever the fuck you want to do. <laughs> you don't got to learn shit. As long as you ain't hurting nobody, be aware. There's certain rules in life that you just have to understand. Don't take advantage of folks. Mm. Don't be little folks. Treat everybody with respect. You don't got to go read every single book in the world and try to get better. You were born how you were born. You white, you were born white. Are you going to hit a reverse button and feel bad about it and dye your skin brown and Rachel Dolezal it? And Oh, boy. Are you going to do that? Like, <laughs> no, I got white friends. I love my white friends. I got black friends. I got Hispanic friends. I got Asian friends. Hey, we different for a reason. But how do you carve that space that... That's that space. When people come to you and ask these questions, you just go... I don't give a shit. What you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. I don't care. That's it. <laughs> they feel comfortable. They go, oh, I could be myself. Yeah, be yourself. Just follow those basic principles. Don't disrespect people and you'll be good. Yeah. That's it. We all just want to live and have fun and coexist with each other and learn from each other. I learn stuff from white folks. White folks learn stuff from me. But if everything was so perfect, then we'd have nowhere to go. We wouldn't have anything to learn from each other. And it's okay to be different. It's okay to have a different political opinion than I have. It's okay to not know something about Black folks and express your ignorance publicly and loudly. And then hopefully someone can be like, oh, that's just not how it is. You go, oh, shit, my bad. Look at that. Look at what I learned today. That's been really important to us here in this space because when we started, Chad said, and it's very funny, you use the exact word. He said, I don't want you to get to be the silly one and I can never be silly. It was that exact word was silly. Yeah. And that's hard for me. And if it's hard for you, good. Let it be hard for you. I don't mean you specifically, Julie. I mean, unfortunately for you, Julian, I'm sorry. I mean, you representative of all the people that look like you in this moment. If it's <laughs> hard this for moment. you, let it be hard. You hold it. Don't make me hold it. Daniel Kaluuya said something in an interview once that I found to be, I mean, it's something that we all think, but the way he said it was so English and very <laughs> straightforward. It just, so I said, so how do we solve racism? He goes, no, no, I didn't create it. You created it. <laughs> oh, my God. He's like, you solve it. And I was like, oh, that's a simple. Yeah, a people always idea. asking that's me easy. what I got to do. Hey, Lamar, what do you think about? I don't know, man. I didn't start this. Is that a question that only a white person asks? Yeah. I can't change your heart. You know, I can't change that. It's a time thing. And it's a thing to understand that will never go away. People are different. And then for some reason, they don't like you. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> don't like Fuck you. you. Fuck you. Okay, I don't care. Lamorne, I wanted to end with finding out what it is that creatively, if money was no object, somebody was like, go produce whatever you want, write whatever you want. What would it be? What would it look like? Man, as silly as you want to be. My favorite movies, Blazing Saddles, Coming to America, Anchor Man. Pootie Tang is one of my favorite movies. Pootie Tang, said I. If I could be Adam Sandler, the man just creates whatever I think is funny. I did a Sandler film once called Sandy Wexler. Let me tell you something. The vibe on set was so goofy. You got people just throwing out jokes, having fun. These are people that he's been working with forever. I want to have fun with my friends and family and have people understand what my sense of humor is. If I could do that, then I'd be an extremely happy individual. So yeah, if money was no object, I could just be silly and goof off with my friends and make some money doing it. Yeah. Did you hear that, Hollywood? He's ready. <laughs> yeah, slapstick. I'm about to go shoot this deep, deep drama. It's great. But at the same time, I'm going, Man, I wonder if they're going to let me get away with a few dick jokes. <laughs> Man. <laughs> They'll shoot them, but they won't use them. Yeah, they won't use now them. Now one has written. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Here's my cheesy thank you, Lamorne. I'm very inspired by you. And Oh, man, thank you. In the first two seconds, I was like, oh, he's fully in his body. He's in his whole soul. I feel given permission by you to be free, to be silly, to do my oh, thing. Thank so thank you. you. Thank you. No, thank you, man. Lamorne, thank you for your time. Man, I love you all. I really do appreciate this. Thank you, sir.